0: Welcome to the Recession-Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. All right. Well, hey, for our listeners, I wanted to jump right in and let people how we know, know how we know each other. Let's see, I sold one of your neighbor's houses before I knew you, your next-door neighbor's house years ago, and then uh, just started working out at the gym with one of your sons, who then became a realtor and Was going to work for me, but now he works for Edge Homes and he's killing it. And uh, we just started talking investments, right? Correct. Perfect. So so for our listeners, um, this is a little bit different podcast. Blair is a good friend of mine. We've been fly fishing together. We've been hunting uh, jackrabbits together, which is a fun story. But mostly we talk about religion and uh, honestly, investments is 90% of our Our conversation. So Blair owns a number of rental properties, the actual same townhomes that I buy and have sold to over 50 different investors. Blair's situation is just fantastic. He's been very, very good with his money. Prime example of saving and um, not spending in uh, frivolous things and, and being in a really good position to own multiple investment properties. So with that said, Blair, I'm kind of curious, you're not a realtor, you're not a normal investor like I interview on the show, you're not a fund manager, you're not a lender. So this will be for me a re- really refreshing interview. I'm really excited to have you on because you teach religion. Indeed I do yeah so th- so this will be fun. so for those people that don't know me, I'm mormon l d s Church of Jesus Christ, Latter day saints, has a few different names, so is Blair. but he has some really, really neat background on the Middle East, has studied and and been over there, and goes back to jerusalem and all the time. So the first thing I wanted to ask you blair, is is how did you get into that, and what inspired you to study that and and go into education and religious education?
1: So I always knew that I wanted to go to Jerusalem ever since I was a little kid. And uh, and so when I was, and I also knew I always wanted to do graduate work in the Middle East. Okay. And where that came from, I don't know. It's kind of internal, Sam.
0: Okay. So you've always been fascinated with the Middle East and yeah. specifically your religion or just the overall dynamics of the middle east probably religion but the
1: dynamics are absolutely fascinating so my doctoral work didn't have to do with religion it had to do with the dynamics of the region got it and so when brigham young university built a campus on the mount of olives something clicked inside of me i was an undergrad at uh, at byu and i made the decision to go and study there on the mount of olives for a semester and uh, that changed my life in so many ways first and foremost, I met my wife there, cool and uh, and so that's been rewarding.
0: And yeah, Katie's up awesome.
1: that was in that was like nineteen eighty eight. I'm sorry, he's your better half for sure. indeed. <laughs> indeed. So we went in nineteen eighty eight, and that was the first time I went, and I've been going back ever since. Wow. I don't know how many times I've been. I suppose I could stop and count them up, but probably thirty. Wow so booked and ready to go in 60 days if if the virus will will recede uh, which we hope
0: and pray it will uh, but if it and doesn't for right. Right. Listeners, you're, you're talking year. about coronavirus people may listen to this after so it it is april 9th we're we're dealing with coronavirus and so so you've got a trip planned and and you're pretty much on hold until we we figure out if there's a lift on travel restrictions.
1: Correct. Yeah, Got it's it. it's mid June, so if something were to break, sometimes the temperature can end a flu season. I don't expect to be able to go, but the tour is ready to go still. Got it. Whereas there, so everything you else you in April and May back. has been canceled. Yeah, I take people.
0: Okay. Awesome.
1: So I'm either traveling to the Middle East to like speak at a scholarly conference or to guide
0: people through religious sites.
1: Very right? cool. So I want to do like, that
0: with you someday. By the way.
1: Yeah, come. Until you go, you can't quite fathom. If you're a Jew, by the way, happy Happy Passover to mm-hmm. our Jewish listeners. Happy right. Easter to Christians, and uh, happy day to our secularists, uh, non-religious nuns, and so forth. Blessings to all. But once you go there, you finally figure out what the draw is. Okay, and so yeah, Sam, you got to come. Awesome. I would love to. So, yeah, one of the reasons I go back, I've got seven kids, and uh, I've lived in Jerusalem multiple times, and I just keep taking my children back. Um, okay. So they've all been there, and when I went to do graduate work, the timing was perfect. It was right on the hills of a peace accord, the last major peace accord between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And I was able to dovetail my research into that accord and worked primarily in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip doing research among
0: Palestinians. Wow. So so for our listeners, and I watch, you know, I'm pretty nerdy. I like to watch documentaries. And, you know, if you ask, I feel like if you ask most of my friends, they don't really know what the West Bank is. They don't really know what the Gaza Strip is. So give us a f- 15, 30 second overview of each of those and why that peace accord was so important and, and kind of why that was exciting for you to be able to dovetail into that with your research and your doctorate. Okay. The, uh, the West Bank, between 1948
1: and 1967, the West Bank of the Jordan River belonged to the, the, the Kingdom of Jordan. Mm-hmm. And Gaza, which is about three miles wide and about 50 miles long, it's one of the most populated places, densely populated places on Earth, that's just a little strip of land that was owned by Egypt. And mm-hmm. as a result of a war in June of 1967, both of those sections of property were taken by the Israeli um, defense forces, the army, and that became occupied territory. And so it's never been normalized. It's still occupied. And according to international law, that's illegal. And hmm. So there's always been efforts to 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 res- resolve that. Jerusalem is in the middle of it. So Jerusalem's so, a divided... So we're talking city.
0: about the West Bank and Gaza are both basically occupied territories. Yeah,
1: today the Gaza Strip is an autonomous zone for the Palestinians. So the Israelis pulled out of that okay. um, about 10 years ago. But the West Bank... And again, Jerusalem's a divided city. So you've got East and West Jerusalem. So East is primarily Palestinian. West is primarily Jewish and, or Israeli. And... And so the the conflict is chronic and, you know, President Trump has made his efforts to bring peace to the region, um, getting little of any traction, but he is, he, you know, he's taken a swing. Every president has.
0: I was going to say pretty much every president tries, was, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The last one to get serious traction was Bill Clinton. And what and did he do that's differently? That's what the court was saying. So anyway, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's quite a story, and very few people know the story of the Palestinians. And so it's always fun to introduce that story to people who are interested in it. But that's a conversation for another day. That's a long <laughs> discussion.
0: It's a long discussion. So so hold on. What did what did Clinton do as far as the peace accord? What worked? I mean, it obviously, hasn't worked hundred percent. But why would you say that that was a little bit more effective?
1: Yeah, the peace accord. Yeah, from 93, just the wheels came off of it, unfortunately. Clinton was able to bridge divides diplomatically that other presidents haven't been able to do. Uh-huh. So as a general rule of thumb, Republican presidents are very, very, very pro-Israel. That has links to conservative Christian ide- ideology and conservative Jewish ideology as well. Mm-hmm and theological positions. They view Israel as being, as having a divine right to the land. Right. Um, whereas Democratic presidents, as a general of them, do not see Israel as having a divine right Got um, to somebody else's land, all right? And so Clinton was able to bring primarily Yasser Arafat into a, a normal realm of diplomatic relations. Whereas all of the presidents prior to Clinton had viewed Yasser Arafat as nothing more than a uh, terrorist. Right. Okay. And so the, in the United Nations, Palestine is a recognized nation. The United States have, has never recognized Palestine as a, as a legitimate nation. Um, wow. And so Clinton was able to just kind of navigate his way through that. Interestingly enough, the negotiations and the peace process was derailed. Uh, as a result of a radical slice of Judaism in Israel, in Israel and a radical slice of Palestinians. The, the radical slice is far more known because of media coverage and things like that. That group is called Hamas. Right. Right? So that's a political party and they have a great deal of power in the Gaza Strip, but not so much at all in the West Bank. Okay? Because God. Palestinians in Gaza can't travel to the West Bank and okay. Palestinians in the West Bank can't travel to Gaza, even though it's only 70 miles away. Right? So it's super close. But they're,
0: they're like two different people. Right? I mean, two this is like the, the Berlin Wall. I mean, I, can't, I didn't uh, yeah. know how
1: serious this was. This yeah, is, and there is a wall that has been built, interestingly enough. Wow. 30, 30 feet high, concrete barrier. When, when Americans see it, it shocks them because yeah. they do, it's bigger than the Berlin Wall. Yeah. So it's interesting.
0: Holy cow. Anyway,
1: so that's more than 15 seconds because you can't <laughs> explain that in 15 seconds, but that's just kind of a nutshell is, Obama made some tracks as well, but there are a lot of forces behind the scenes that, that are ready to undermine certain efforts at peace. And that's on both sides of the struggle.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's some serious radicalism. I mean, all I hear, I don't watch the news a lot specifically because it's mostly doom and gloom and I don't feel like you get a clear picture from either side when you watch the news. I prefer to get information from people like you who actually have studied and aren't just a news station trying to sell, you know, sell the news. But, you know, you often hear of Hamas ra- launching rockets and and I feel like you hear that a lot in the news. So I'm going to derail our conversation a little bit. I wanted to get back into you and, and what you've done with your career and, and teaching religion. But, but, you know, when you hear stuff on the news that Hamas is launching rockets or is re- Israel is, is doing something, how do you uh, react to that? And, and is it pretty clear to you that it, those are just the radical forces or is there some serious threat to all-out war in the region still? Well,
1: Israel is a superpower if you look at the power that the united states has militarily israel can't ride it but given the region there is a nobody militarily who could touch israel wow and so they are basically the only the only nation in the western world that actually has nuclear weapons active like wow. push a button the united states would have to go through kind of a procedure to activate nuclear weapons they could do it rather quickly but mm-hmm. those they are alive and ready to shoot in in israel Got it. uh anyway among the palestinians as a general of thumb about 98 to 99 percent of the opposition from palestinians to the israelis is peaceful resistance mm-hmm. and that could have anything to do that could range from a march in the streets that could go to graffiti on the so called security barrier, which again runs right. Is, Bethlehem, for example, is a Palestinian city. Okay. And so that's only five miles from Jerusalem. So, in order to go from Bethlehem into Palestine, it's basically going into another nation. Wow. But you have to drive through. Again, a 30-foot-high concrete wall. And so when you get on the Bethlehem side, because Palestinians do not have free access. uh, So for Muslim Palestinians, the holiest site would be haram al sharif um, what Jews and conservative Christians refer to as the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's where every Friday, an adherent Muslim within five miles of that site, the Holy Sanctuary, Mm-hmm. right, would travel to pray. But they cannot do that. So I did a lot of research at, at Bethlehem University with professors there and had a, had a dear friend who was a professor at Bethlehem University, taught at the university, lived near a, a town called Ramallah. That's where mm-hmm. she lives. And that's about seven miles. Um, and it would take her two and a half hours to get to Bethlehem. Wow. Because of the, the different checkpoints that you would have to, an American would never tolerate it. And so peaceful resistance can come at the different checkpoints. It can come at, with a march. There was peaceful resistance in, in Gaza a year ago and earlier where Palestinians just uh, marched to the barrier between Israel and the Gaza Strip mm-hmm. and, and were attacked then you have other measures uh, oh by the way peaceful peaceful resistance can involve strikes mm-hmm. taxes in israel are incredibly high and if you live in jerusalem uh, or another city like nazareth your taxes are significantly higher and so you just close the doors of your shop
0: are they higher for palestinians versus israelis or uh-huh. or jews yeah, yeah. Wow. And so it's
1: an, it's an apartheid situation. If I were to just kind of lay it out in detail, you would say, man, that's South Africa. Yeah. So it's frequently, South Africa, you know, when that was an apartheid. Uh, so it's frequently likened to South Africa, African-American ghettoization. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has all, that's all about real estate and where yeah. you can buy land, right? Yeah. So ghetto, ghettoization of the inner city is is how you partition off people of color in the united states you do it with real estate largely
0: okay you, you know um, let me let me pause you there i didn't understand that <laughs> I, I laugh because i'm I'm from utah and idaho i grew up knowing i l- had one african american or black friend in idaho growing up one more at our high school our senior year so i, I knew a total of two so when you say racism, I'm just like, I, I've heard the word, I don't understand what it is. I never ever experienced it ever. He was just another kid to us, you know. I, I, we didn't care that he was black or African-American and and I had no idea what racism was. So I had to prove for two years from my mission, experience extreme racism um in Peru against whites and and blacks um, from the Peruvians. But then I go do summer sales and I sold alarm systems in Philadelphia, New Jersey, was in Baltimore and DC a little bit, and then Kansas City and where else was I? And then California. So what you're talking about was amazing when I saw that Newark, New Jersey, I mean, the government builds ghettos for these people. And it's, it's it's just crazy. And they stay there. They stay there for generations. And it's pretty hard for them to get out. I think a lot of them can get out. But that's a whole nother topic. But just uh, my perspective changed a ton when I spent five different summers in those ghettos. And so what you're saying about Palestine and, and Israel, it's much more real to me because... I did experience it in Peru and, and the US, it was just very interesting to me, the living conditions, the segregation that still happens, whether it's by choice now or not. I mean, there's, we can get off on a ton of different topics there, but very, very interesting to me how prevalent this still is. I feel like the US from my travels is one of the most free countries in the world, but it's still definitely not hundred percent free or net, not hundred percent perfect.
1: Yeah, and so as real estate investors, if you can control how money is dispersed,
2: mm-hmm.
1: banking institutions, and you can determine who gets it and who doesn't, you can wreak all sorts of havoc and you can also promote a lot of social equality. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, <clears throat> it, there's just a super interesting story about and complex history about how banking and land ownership was employed to separate whites and blacks. Sure. And I mean, so they didn't that's, even try to hide it for,
0: for two hundred years, right? I mean it wasn't even disguised. It was just straight right. up Yeah. Segregation. And and I feel like now it's getting better. The the investors I just got off a call with definitely care to treat people equally, but I state, I would say there's still a ton of it and it's disguised. And I would say my generation doesn't even recognize it or know about it or really understand it. that's why it's really fun to talk about because I, we we don't even know what's going on. I mean, we're just, we listen to rap. We are, we watch your sports where 90% of the athletes are not white and we're fine with it. We're totally cool with it, but we don't understand really what's gone on and where these people are coming from.
1: Yeah. So anytime I access funds, as I work with you and, and to invest. I, con- I do, I contemplate the people in the United States who do not have easy access. I mean, Sam, you and I, and my guess is most of your listeners, can access money in the blink of an eye. We are not your typical Americans. We have access to a lot of resources. As you know, my daughter, what is she, 22? Mm-hmm. Maybe 23, she is building a, a home right now. Yeah. Right? So, a 22 year old being able to access six figures from financial sources, that, that is just unheard of. And so, the freedoms that we enjoy almost unconsciously, right? I, I try to stop and just consider that not everybody in the United States has access to those resources, the way that I do and the way that you do. And, and they're just so casual about it. But I like, I at least like to commemorate that minorities, including Jews, have been different ethnicities, have been hedged against financially for centuries.
0: Oh yeah, well, and if you read Warren Buffett's book, his sister dated a Jew and she was basically almost disowned by Warren's family for dating a Jew I mean that's in Omaha Nebraska that's 50 years ago but right. I had no idea what my one of my greatest fears is and you're you know you've got seven kids and you may have, be able to set, shed some light on this for me I live in a great house in a great place with not a not a lot of diversity though and my number one fear is that my kids will be as oblivious to racism and and a, it's not a good place to teach them going to the news or going to politics because there's too much finger pointing, I feel. So one of my plans has been just to take them to the ghetto. I mean, I never, I met so many great people in these ghettos where I was selling alarm systems or pest control. And that was very eye opening. So one of my fears is that my kids are just going to grow up too, too privileged and um, not really understand and just be oblivious to what's going on. And, and how like you said how lucky they are to to have the opportunities they have
1: yeah and studies have proven that that travel is has an immeasurable almost an immeasurable impact on somebody's appreciation for diversity yeah and so that's why it's very important for me to take all of my kids to the middle east at least once because you see Hotbeds of differences. Whether you're in Egypt or Israel or Jordan, those are pr- primarily the nations that I go to. And so, yeah, it's very, very enriching to get your kids off the the Wasatch Front, which is pretty lily, lily white, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Meridian, Idaho, thirty-three thousand residents, and we we were either farmers or construction workers, and that was about it. So, yeah, I, I think that'll be one of the tactics I use to hopefully avoid the the just, I guess, them being spoiled and oblivious to what the world's really like, because going to Peru really opened my eyes, going to back east, and anyways, I, I, I'll, I'll talk to you more about that, but I'd love to go to Jerusalem. I do have a question about your travels over there. How is it for Americans? Because when I was in Peru, there was times I couldn't go out of my apartment. If they were on strike because they hated America, they hated George Bush, they didn't want free trade in in Peru with with America in 2006 or seven, I had to stay indoors for a week, actually had to run from a a group that kicked us off a bus and was throwing rocks at us. Because we were Americans, we had to run through a city and escape. So I've experienced racism, and it's pretty crazy. And I've heard it's intense in the Middle East. Tell me how it is for, for Americans when you go back.
1: Yeah, so what you can figure out in a big hurry is how privileged Americans are that a passport from the United States of America is not gold, it's platinum, right? It wow. is the most privileged travel document on the planet. And so the relationship between Israel and the United States is incredibly strong. And so a, an American passport has carries a lot of weight. And so as a general thumb, when you're in Israel proper, you don't have to show a passport okay, at all, ever. One of the primary incomes of the modern state of Israel is tourism, and so we are completely welcome. And a lot of that is tourism from the United States. Okay. And so all the doors fly wide open. Then there are a lot of security measures that. So when an American uh, comes in and out of Israel, especially when they go out, there's there's a lot of interrogation by Israeli security officials that can be kind of jarring. So I actually have to coach people how to leave Israel.
0: Wow. All right.
1: Anyway, the only time that I have received a great deal of opposition in my travels is when I was doing my research and it was obviously in the West Bank and gaza and these are areas that are heavily controlled by the israeli defense forces so the army basically governs the west bank okay Okay. and so when you go from one section of the west bank to another some would suggest to you that the west bank is entirely palestinian but that is not the case because israel maintains maintains governance over the roadways so all israel has to do to shut down the west bank is close down the roads And then you can't, you don't have freedom of travel. So that's why my my colleague at Bethlehem, it would take her two and a half, three hours, sometimes four hours to go seven miles Mm -hmm. because the cab drivers would just have to get off the normal roads and go on like dirt roads over hills and stuff like that. Incredibly taxing, incredibly exhausting. I could just get on the road, ride in a taxi until I got to where the army with machine guns and everything, stopped the taxi and told the taxi, you can go no further. I would then get out of the taxi, walk past the Israeli soldiers, and just show them my passport. And I could pass through with ease, whereas my Palestinian friends and others that were in that taxi, because you, you get in what's called a
2: shrewd, it's a public taxi. Mm-hmm. So it's like- uh, the great demand for rentals so the castle is great so did one deal there we may be doing some more here next year you know and and then uh, deal in phoenix a few months ago as well through that so so you know just kind of worked with a couple different people and i'm narrowing it down to who i really like to work with so i'm going to focus on on that and um, not spread myself too thin just kind of where can I add value, right? Because again, I have a full-time job, but I'm really, you know, being in IT for so many years, you know, I know how to underwrite a deal. I can, I can look through a PNL and l and really understand what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. And, uh, and you know, if it comes to websites, it comes to presentations and all that stuff. So kind of just add value where I can. So that's why I'm, you know, I'm heading to, heading to Pennsylvania here this weekend, then a couple of weeks I'm heading to Phoenix and uh, stuff like that. So get some traveling around the country these days.
3: Very cool, very cool. Well, what do you have going on now? I mean, I know you you brought in investors in your deals. Um, what does a typical investor look like? What are their goals? Um, what do you talk to them about when you're underwriting a deal and, and talking about a deal with them?
2: Nah, uh, that's a good question. So. You know, I started this conversation with, with people in my network, you know, three or four years ago and said, hey, you know, I'm investing in real estate. If I ever find a deal that makes sense, are you interested in investing with me? But I didn't come to the day I had the deal. I, I kind of, anybody that would listen long enough, I said, hey, I'm Jensen, the real estate investor, not the IT guy, right? And just kind of pre- just start a conversation, some people had no interest. And other people, oh man, let's talk more. You know, let's have coffee. Let's let's really get into it. So that way, I've very organically grown a network of people that that's on my list, right? Through friends and families, and people I met at events, and and been on, you know, people contact me after podcasts and stuff. So I've just kind of grown that, and you know, people. A lot of people like, oh, I got all my money in the stock market, and the stock market is doing great. I said, yeah, until it's it's not, right? We all know what happened in 2008. So people, you know, they, you know, they're just a lot of them who are not jumping in, you know, full on. They just want uh, an alternative investment that is not 100% correlated to the stock market, you know. And if you can pay them, you know, seven, eight, nine percent on their on their money. And you can also, you know, grow to equity over time. That's, that's pretty good. And the tax advantages are amazing, right? I mean, you, you end up not paying tax typically you know, for several years and you got to recap this, some of that, but in, in overall, we know how, how great they are from a tax standpoint, right?
3: Oh yeah. Huge. I mean, th- that's the thing that you don't get with the stock market is, I mean, that's 100% taxable income, right? If, if you're making money in the stock market and real estate, you own a a physical asset that that is getting older and breaking down over time, guess what? The IRS lets you write those numbers off. And just like you said, if you buy into a a deal like Jens or myself are are buying right now, you may have a few years of tax-free income off that deal because of the depreciation and maybe a cost segregation study is done or maybe just typical depreciation. But that's huge because if you're getting a seven, 8%, but that's tax free, depending on your tax bracket, that may be closer to a 10, 11, 12% return total on the money. So I think that's huge. And, uh, and I actually, as a real estate broker, that's my identical investor uh, profile is they have a lot of money in the stock market. They remember getting killed in 2008, <laughs> and they say, you know what, I'm getting nervous. I have way too much money or all my money in the stock market. I need to diversify and guess what? Real estate can't go to zero. It it just doesn't. If you buy the right deal, you're gonna have it in a downturn, upturn, it's not gonna go away. So that's the beautiful beautiful thing about real estate. And I would say you and I have very identical investor profiles, people that just make really good money and wanna make sure they're buying and, and investing in something that can't go away during the next downturn.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, as we know, we're becoming more of a nation of renters and stuff like that. So there's probably going to be an ongoing demand for affordable housing and and so forth. Right. So I think, yeah, obviously I can't predict the future, but that's kind of what I feel what we're going to be looking at, you know, so there'll always be a demand for multifamily. Are we going to see increased vacancies? Are we going to see reduced rents and stuff if there's a downturn for sure? You know, stuff will probably happen. I don't know what, but yeah. as long as we, you know, we go into a deal, we underwriter said, what can be, what can we survive, survive from a vacancy standpoint and stuff? So we can still serve that debt, you know, if you have a tough year or so, okay, that's fine. As long as we can still keep the property, right? Yeah. I
3: mean, that's the crazy thing for us is, you know, our investors will ask, well, how risky of a deal is this? And my answer always is we'll, we'll never buy a deal that doesn't pay for itself even in a huge downturn. So any deal that we do, we stress test it. Any deal that I'm underwriting or writing offers on right now, I'm not getting really any accepted offers because prices are so high, but (laughs) we won't go past a price where if it's 20% vacant, expenses are still all paid for. And that's where people got in trouble in the downturn. That's why people lost these duplexes, fourplexes or even larger complexes is because they couldn't pay the expenses if, if vacancy went past 5, 6, 7, 8%, and vacancies in some areas went up to 12%. So we are so conservative in our underwriting that there's no way that we're going, not going to be able to pay for all of our own expenses and, and at least stay afloat very easily during a serious downturn. And I'm sure you guys are doing something similar.
2: No, sure. And then have, you know, the other, the other side of that coin is, is, is dead, right? You want to make sure you have long-term debt as yeah. long as you can get it on commercial, you know, if that's 10 or 12 years, it may make sense to pay a little bit extra to have a longer term because the biggest, I think the other big challenge in the last downturn was that the bank stopped lending. And if you can't refinance your loan when you have to, you are in trouble. Right. So, so that's yep. the other challenge. So, um, you know, have some have some cash reserves, have some operating reserves, and underwrite it conservatively, and have have longer term debt is definitely some of the things that, that we're looking at.
3: No, that's uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because there's people doing two and three year loans right now saying, oh well, if we refi, we'll force the appreciation rehab it. Well, what if you can't refi? What if banks just simply don't want to? Or let's talk about predatory lending. Not that that may happen again, um, but it could. What if the bank's giving you a three-year loan because in a downturn, they're just going to take it back from you and not let you refi and hope that you can't, you know? So people just, I don't think all, I don't think enough people learn from the last downturn and that's kind of scary watching these deals get done where they're not, they don't have that contingency fund. They don't have a couple hundred thousand of operating expenses saved up for, for a rainy day and they're getting a two or three year loan hoping to refi and they 're not planning on higher rates because rates could easily jump after the election who knows you know who knows lots of crazy things but you know I, I'm curious Jens, you you're hugely successful in your you know your w2 job you've traveled the world obviously you've gotten promotions from D- Denmark to the UK to the US and and you're doing well in your in uh, real estate investing as well but the question I always ask all my people is is it work ethic or or talent. And it seems like most of my people on the show say that it's, it's work ethic, but I'm kind of curious for your own career and real estate and, and also the tech world. What have you seen?
2: Yeah, I think it, I think it's a little bit of a combination, right? I think you don't get, you don't get any results without working really hard at it. And if it's hard, you know, you just keep working harder. Right. So I think the worth ethic for sure it's a huge piece of it. I think you also have a natural talent. There are some things that comes easier to you from a, you know, that what is your core skill set, right? And everybody said, oh, you should work on your weak weaknesses. I said, no, 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 don't work on your weaknesses. Work on what you're really good at and get even better at that. And really, I was very good at IT. So I worked really hard at it. But I also, you know, I'm, I, I, you know I, I got pretty high up there and, and pretty successful in it. And I think that the real estate side of things, it's it's something I can understand because it's it's a formula, right? You look at a property, you underwrite it, you figure out what it's going to cost to buy it and fix it up. What are your rents? I can kind of see the same patterns around it. It is it is not it's not abstract, <laughs> which I'm not good at dealing with. It's concrete, and which is that's kind of where my skills are. Right? So I feel I feel the two skill sets complement each other. If you ask me to go and negotiate with somebody and do all the fine personal skills to do negotiation, that's probably not my core skill set and I'll leave that to somebody else, right?
3: (laughs) Sure, sure. But I mean and I think you're right though. I think real estate is very factual, very I mean, easy to quantify. Basically you just have to learn how to underwrite a deal and don't budge on your on those principles. So I feel like anyone, if they work hard enough or long enough in real estate, they can learn how to do it right. And if they stick with it, they'll eventually find great deals and, and be able to be very successful and, and very wealthy investing in, in the right deals. It's not like it's the NBA where unless you're 6'8", 280 muscle. You know, like, like there's no – for me, I don't see a specific – profile of a successful real estate investor. There, Jens from Denmark, they're me from Idaho. And then there's Robert from, you know, he's got a New York background and there's so many different backgrounds and, and sets involved. But the common denominator for me is people have just stuck with it and learned and, and kept working at it and sometimes failing and keeping at it. Rod Cleef, one of our mutual mentors, Talks all the time about how much he lost in last downturn and how much he learned, and he stuck with it, and he's building that portfolio back up. So for me, it's more just the work ethic, sticking to the grind and grinding it out, and and making sure that um, you don't quit. Yeah. Uh, So I mean, it's got to be similar with mountain biking. I don't know if you (laughs) were amazing at it the first time you jumped on a mountain bike, but. I rode dirt bikes growing up and it took a lot of time to learn how to not crash and and get faster and faster.
2: Well, anything that's worthwhile having is not easy, right? Right. (laughs) And, you know, just, just who we have to become to be successful in anything like we develop personally and we create new relationships and, you know, just having met you and everybody else has just been another big piece of this whole growth. I was like, Oh my God, I love going to these events where everybody's, like-minded they all want the same it's not about you know it's just about growing you know personally with a group for the for the for the you know your community and for your tenants and everything else I really love that so that's that's a huge and then just mindset too right I mean things don't go well the first time don't give up just keep working towards it right and, and things will eventually come to fruition.
3: I love it, and I, I love having coaches, and, and really, our mastermind group, we're all coaching each other, right? We're all learning from each other's experiences, and I'll, I watch a lot of NBA and sports, so my favorite example is Carmelo Anthony and LeBron James. They, they entered the NBA at the same time, with the same build, the same basic skill set. LeBron has better coaches and has worked way, way harder than Carmelo literally, they're both 6'8", 260 pounds of pure muscle and, and athletic talent. LeBron's a world champion and Carmelo struggles to now find a team that wants him to play for them. Mm. Yeah, And you know, for me, that's how real estate has been is I haven't been the most skilled and naturally talented investor or negotiator, but over the last 10 years, I won't give up. And I'll just keep hiring more coaches and learning and learning and working hard and and I told my business partner, Lyndon, who you know, like yep. this isn't a, this isn't a sprint. This is a marathon to see who can just stick with it and keep learning every single day. And and those people I feel are going to be successful whether there's a downturn or an upturn or, or anything happens because you just stick with it and, and keep working hard. What else do you have going on that our listeners can maybe benefit from, or do you have any deals coming up? Tell me what you've got going on right now.
2: Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, um, going back to Pennsylvania's area, there we got maybe some opportunities there early next year that that's looking good. Yeah, you know, the other thing that I do too, kind of on the side, you know, is a little bit of coaching help help newer investors. Not you know, not saying I'm a very experienced one, but I, I do do you know somebody who is like trying to get their first deal, I help coach them too and help them really grow because I, I I feel having maybe draw a parallel back to the to the sports or the cycling. I feel like, you know, it's it, just having the mindset around what you're trying to achieve and, and human performance can be so much bigger than I think most humans ever realize, right? We, we have so much potential, but if you don't have somebody to help us to bring it out, we may not ever reach it. So I really like to help you know people get started and grow and all that. So that's, that's another one of my passions to, to work on that. I love that, man. I, I
3: also love coaching. I've coached you know, basketball for kids, I love coaching new realtors and helping them learn how to sell and work harder and set goals. Eventually, I'd love to mentor new investors, show them how to be conservative and, and invest the right way. But I I think that's huge. And that's how you give back. So I really like that about you. And I think you're right. You know, one thing I've I've read a lot of books on Navy SEALs, and they always say, you know, your body can do 40% more than your mind thinks it thinks it can. So once you think you're at the point of failure, they push you and they show you how to get so much further and, and real estate investing can be similar where you think you've looked at a deal or you think you're doing the right thing you just need someone to show you, okay, this is how you structure it or this is how you need to look at the deal because there's so much you don't know and and I think you do have a lot of experience. I mean you've got a what is it, eight hundred apartments, two thousand pad mobile home pads, is that right?
2: Yeah, for my passive investments, yeah. And so,
3: uh, so yeah, an experience <laughs> offer and so how do people reach out to
2: you if they're looking to be mentored or coached or just have some questions for you? Yeah. So my email is Jens, J-E-N-S at com. So opendoors with an S com. And another thing I like to offer anybody of your listeners is to get on a free call with me so they can go to com slash call and schedule a call with me. I get, you know, 15, 20 minute calls, but I've had calls from all over the country. So that's always exciting. You know, somebody that's to to grow my network and share and help other people so that's something I love to do
3: awesome so that's and that's huge that's a huge value so anybody listening to this definitely reach out to Jens I'll put his contact info at the bottom um, in the show notes also share this on Facebook Jens thank you so much anything anything else you'd like to talk to our maybe one last idea about investing that you'd like to leave with our our listeners
2: just go out there, take action, and don't be discouraged if things doesn't happen immediately. You know, that's that's pretty much what I tell anybody I work with. Hey, just keep taking the making the right acts taking the right action, and eventually something will happen. So that's that's really what I try to leave everybody with.
3: I would second that. We're 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 analyzing a ton of deals right now, and not having a ton of luck getting sellers to agree to the price where we feel like we can make it work. So my partner and I, Lyndon, we're just focusing on getting in front of as many deals as we possibly can, keep working, keep working because eventually we know we're going to find a really good one. So thanks for that. I really appreciate what you just said.